This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Department of History. My guest in the studio today is Jeremy Suri, who is a professor of history and public affairs here at the University of Texas at Austin, as well as a frequent commentator in local, state, and national media. And we're here today to talk about the subject of his latest book, The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. Dr. Suri, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me on, Chris. I'm going to start by quoting you at you. Oh, that's a dangerous thing to do. I know it is. The first sentence of your book, I have a feeling, is is supposed to be a trigger, and it is. The presidency is the most powerful office in the world, but it is set up to fail. Strong words. Yes. My argument in the book is that this office, the presidency as we know it, has developed over time. And as it has developed over time, it's accomplished some extraordinary things that I'm sure we're going to talk about. But it's reached a point now where the responsibility, the set of expectations, the management tasks surrounding the presidency have made it impossible for the president to succeed in doing any of the big things that people want the president to do. Presidents end up doing a lot of small things and not doing a lot of big things. And that's why we don't have effective policymaking that looks forward beyond our immediate needs and immediate crises. I argue also that this is not unique to the American presidency. I think it's the modern condition, Chris. All of us uh, suffer from this. We're all spending more and more time answering people on email, responding to texts, etc., and getting less done. And so what we see in our own lives is what we're seeing in the presidency magnified many times over. And my book is an effort to explain historically how we've come to this point and perhaps how we can move beyond it. One of the things that really struck me, and thank you for providing me with the galleys of this to prepare for the interview, is that you really set out the sense that at the beginning, as we were coming out of the period of the Articles of Confederation, which the Founding Fathers recognized had not been successful, was the degree of uncertainty and experimentation even that they went through because they really weren't that certain what they wanted the chief executive to be. Yes, this is a great question, Chris, and it's a really important point. We tend to revere the founding fathers, and I revere the founding fathers, uh, but we get them wrong. These were not dogmatic men who had all the answers. That is not the case. They often used forceful language and they enjoyed rhetoric and argumentation, but the genius of the founders was the genius of experimentation, the genius of innovation. They knew they were inventing something that did not exist before and they knew they did not have the answers. And I deeply respect them, especially in the creation of the modern presidency, in seeking to create something that didn't exist and recognizing it was going to evolve over time. The founding fathers wanted and needed, they recognized, an office that would bring this sprawling democracy together. We were going to be a larger, more participatory society than ever before. Madison, Hamilton, and others comment on this. And they needed some figure, some office that would bring the country together. But they also recognized that monarchs were corrupt and degenerate. And so they wanted, in the words of some, a democratic monarchy, which of course seems like a contradiction. 
And that's what the office of the presidency was to be. Now, if we went back and talked to five, six, seven of the founders, we get five, six, seven visions of what the office should look like. And that's the whole point of my book, that the office has evolved over time. It's been made by the leaders in the office and the people who elected them with each generation. And we're doing that right now. The first occupants of the office, you argue quite extensively, really set the tone for not only the sort of function of the presidency, but also his role, both within government and within the country. George Washington, interesting man. Can you describe how he was able to to sort of accomplish this? Absolutely. Uh, George Washington is a fascinating figure. And again, a figure that we often understand, but sometimes misconstrue. Washington was not all-knowing. And he was not this godly figure as he's often depicted in the Gilbert Stewart portraits that I love, actually. (laughs) Uh, Washington was uh, very conscious of the fact that his role, as it had been during the revolution, also in the post-revolutionary period, would be to set a model. And that a parchment document, as he said, doesn't set the model, it's the behavior of people. And he saw the role of a leader as actually being an individual that sets a framework for government moving forward. And there are three things that I highlight that he did, I think, that were really, really important and often forgotten when we talk about him. First, he spent a lot of time traveling the country, going quite literally from inn to inn, meeting with farmer after farmer. His diary is wonderfully filled with these descriptions. And he was connecting citizens with a larger government beyond their local government. He wanted citizens of Massachusetts to think of themselves as Americans, citizens of Virginia to think of themselves as Americans. They didn't. He helped create this American identity defined by a common good government that would connect us. Second thing he did, and this is a really important point, is he surrounded himself with talented people and he had them focus on solving problems, building a functioning economy, putting together a functioning foreign policy apparatus to keep us out of war, dealing with uh, rebellious farmers who didn't want to pay their whiskey taxes, things of that sort. The play Hamilton, which I love, tends to overemphasize the ideological differences. Hamilton and Jefferson saw the world differently, but actually they worked very well together under Washington's leadership. That's what a great leader does, Mm -hmm. brings people together to solve problems. Third thing that, that Washington did, which is really important, is he created a foundation for the United States to develop policy that would focus upon serving our needs, our national needs, and keeping us out of conflicts that were important, but would actually be distractions from our needs. He did not want the country going to war frequently. And one of the reasons he resigned after eight years was he also wanted the country to continually remake itself. So he really set a pattern that was as important as any words in the Constitution. One of the 19th century presidents who really sort of breaks the mold and brings new thinking to the office of the presidency, as you point out, is, is Andrew Jackson. And you could call that new thinking, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it was, it, was, it, was, it was different and, and yet not, you know, because the populist movement was getting started and he very much was a populist. But as, as you point out, he was quite a mold breaker. Yes. So in some ways, you could see Andrew Jackson as the un-George Washington figure, although Andrew Jackson revered George Washington. Andrew Jackson was the first American president who was actually born in the territory of what would become the United States, born in the United States itself, not born under the British Empire. And he was also the first frontiersman to become president. He was born to a poor backwoods Carolina family, grew up fighting Indians because the Indians were on land he needed to survive. 
That's where his Indian hatred, that's where his racism toward Indians comes from. And Jackson believed that the presidency had become too elite-centered, that it was serving the interests of financial groups in New York and Philadelphia, and that it was serving the interests of elite East Coast individuals. And if you look at the people who populated the presidency, they were all Virginia and Massachusetts elites before Andrew Jackson. As a settler of Tennessee, he was the first president really to bring the office to people well beyond the traditional power centers. Now, two things need to be said about Andrew Jackson. Uh, His populism, as we come to call it, was not rhetoric alone. That was who he was. He used the office as best he could to help poor farmers like himself when he was younger. This was not rhetoric. He did not bring financial elites into office and pretend he was draining the swamp. He was actually using the office to try to serve those who were poor and left out. And that's why that strain of American history remains so important. I argue later that Franklin Roosevelt is himself a populist. Second thing about Andrew uh, Jackson was that he believed in government. He was not anti-government. He had been a senator. Uh, He had been a general. He had been involved in writing the Constitution for Tennessee. Andrew Jackson believed that government was good. He just believed it was misguided before him in the office. And so he sought to work with members of Congress, and he sought to work with his own party, what becomes the Democratic Party, to actually make government work. So to be a populist for Jackson was not to be anti-government. It was to actually be pro-government for the people who were left out. Another president who comes from very humble origins, of course, this is much more storied. I think Jackson, you know, has probably by virtue of the fact that he was such an outsider, got sort of a negative reputation for among his contemporaries. But Abraham Lincoln also comes from very sim- similar origins. You refer to him as a poet. <laughs> yes, yes. So I, I think Abraham Lincoln is one of the most extraordinary people in the history of the world. Tolstoy says this. Okay. Uh, I, I don't mean Lincoln is the greatest person in the history of the world. I think he's one of the most interesting people. Uh, here is someone who has really less than two years of schooling mm-hmm. and is probably not just one of our great presidents, but one of the great masters of the English language. And it's humbling to read Lincoln's words and to think about how he masters the language and moves us to this day with so much less preparation than any of us listening to this recording (laughs) have. And I make the point that this is absolutely crucial. He is the first president, really, to mobilize the English language in the way he does. This does not mean that language substitutes for the killing on the battlefields. But what Lincoln does is he finds the words to articulate for Americans, North and even some in the South, Mm -hmm. what the country is about and how they can move forward beyond what he sees as this scourge of slavery, the sin of slavery, and the horror of this war. And I just visited this summer uh, the Gettysburg Battlefield again. I do something Lincoln every summer with my family. My family is suffering through this with me. Um, (laughs) And what's extraordinary, you, you walk through this battlefield, and I'm sure many of our listeners have too, it's horrible. Uh, It's a horrible battle. More than 10,000 people die and are injured in in, in a few days in a place that no one wanted to fight in. But at the end, the Gettysburg Address, delivered a few months later, really turns that battle into a moment of renewal, of rebirth for the country. And that matters. And boy, Chris, in a world where we're so busy to send 140 character messages to each other, we are sorely missing Mm -hmm. in the language to make us better people. And so I'm inspired by Lincoln to this day, and quite frankly, looking for a new Lincoln. 
I love the quote that you include from the president of Harvard at the time who says that the Gettysburg Address accomplished in two minutes what I wouldn't have been able to accomplish in two hours. Yes, yes. Uh, I think that that's really uh, encapsulates you know how good he was at that. And, and that's what leadership is, right? Right. Leadership is not about doing everything as fast as you can. It's finding those moments when the key words make a difference. In the last few years with a series of presidents, we have lived through presidents missing Mm-hmm. those moments, and we are missing something as a people, as a consequence. You also treat the Roosevelts. We have Theodore, the progressive, and Franklin, whom you, you describe as the uh, populist, as sort of the concluding section of your Rise yes. series. What makes them part of this this upward motion in the, the institution of the presidency? Well, well, one of the things I'm fascinated by is how one generation learns from the one before. So Lincoln, in some ways, takes what he sees as the best of Washington and Jackson. And Theodore Roosevelt is, is a Lincolnian in mm-hmm. every way. And he sees his program as taking the accomplishments of Lincoln coming out of the Civil War and really making them more permanent, institutionalizing them and making them, to, to some extent, even global. So Theodore Roosevelt is responsible, really, for the next stage of American industrialization and for all kinds of progressive legislation that allows us, as we're industrializing, to also have things such as workmen's compensation to have anti-poverty measures and to create national parks, which are designed as spaces where people can escape Mm -hmm. from the dirt and grime of an industrial city and reacquaint themselves with human nature. Uh, What Theodore Roosevelt is doing at home and abroad is trying to provide a permanent foundation for human beings to thrive in a more prospering post-Civil War economy. And he has a vision of this and is remarkably effective, I think. And Franklin Roosevelt, his cousin, inherits that system and many of the problems of that system. That's what the Great Depression is. That's what fascism is. Those who are left behind, those who are harmed by this system. And Roosevelt makes the presidency into a healing institution. I love all the oral histories we have of Franklin Roosevelt. We have thousands of them where people who never experienced anything like his background, people who came from far poorer backgrounds, were not elite Roosevelts, still would say, that man understood me. He Mm -hmm. empathized with me. Roosevelt Franklin recognizes that you have to marry the accomplishment and progressivism of a Lincoln and a Theodore Roosevelt with the empathy of what he represents uh, as president. And he turns this institution into a personal institution. He quite literally brings the presidency into people's homes through the radio. And again, anyone who lived through that period speaks of Roosevelt in those terms. At this point, you then start discussing the section of the book is called fall although i I think that is probably a vastly oversimplified term for what you describe yes yes you actually discuss both kennedy and our hometown hero lbj but as frustrated leaders um who are kind of the first to really experience the downside of the office and what it's starting to become Yeah, it's quite extraordinary, Chris, to uh, spend a lot of time looking at how these men organized their time. Mm-hmm. And one of the great things about being a historian is we work with primary documents. We get to actually look at the original stuff. And one of the original sets of documents that I was fortunate enough to look at are the calendars that all of these presidents kept, including Franklin Roosevelt. And I have some of these in the book. I've reproduced some of them. So Franklin Roosevelt's calendar is written in pencil, and it looks like an old daytimer's page. Uh, Your calendar and mine are busier than Franklin Roosevelt's. It is 
about the time of Kennedy's presidency that we see in the White House and also in corporate America that calendars get more scientific and more filled. Mm-hmm. And what Kennedy and Johnson struggle with is they've inherited this office from Franklin Roosevelt that has done so much for the country and the world. And now it's asked to do even more. And they are sort of on a treadmill that was already going very fast that's now been doubled in speed. And I imagine them as these men, these great runners, who are trying to keep up, but the treadmill just keeps going faster and faster and faster. And they get frustrated, and they both say this time and again, that they don't have time to understand the issues they have to make decisions about, and they're constantly asked to do more and more. These two men then fall into a pattern of constantly taking more on and claiming they're going to do more than they themselves know that they can do. And I think that's the beginning of the fall of the office. That creates this profound disillusionment mm-hmm. where we come to see our leaders as liars because they're promising to, you know, bring sunshine in the morning, food in the ground, <laughs> and do everything right. for us. And then when they don't succeed, uh, we think they're lying. Exactly. You know, you also give uh, quite a few pages to, to Ronald Reagan, who... Um, I, I think we all recognize that he was he was a vastly significant member of the recent presidential cadre, regardless of, you know, your opinion on some of his policies, but that, you know, he also managed to keep a whole bunch of balls in the air. Right. For better or for worse. Right. What, what fascinates me with Reagan is I think Reagan had some profound insights. Uh, one of them was actually just what we've been talking about, that the office of the presidency was trying to do too much. And so Reagan was actually trying to scale back the office. You could argue that Reagan actually understood the problem as well as anyone has in the last 50 years. But what I try to show in this chapter is even understanding the problem, he couldn't work his way out of it. He actually did remarkable things with regard to shifting American policy toward the Soviet Union and working with Mikhail Gorbachev, which reflected his willingness to get outside of the treadmill Mm -hmm. of what the CIA was telling him, including then CIA Director Robert Gates, what other institutions were telling him, and he thought for himself. But as I point out in the chapter on Reagan, he wasn't able to do that in other areas. And he was forced, despite his own inclinations, to take positions on AIDS, for example, to take positions on poverty in the United States. And the positions he took in a somewhat thoughtless way, because he didn't take the time to understand the issues, which he could have, ended up harming thousands and thousands of people. And that's a problem George Washington didn't have because he wasn't asked to comment on those issues because he didn't have power that was relevant to those issues. So the Reagan chapter, in a sense, is a kind of tragic chapter in that he sees the problem in a Shakespearean way but can't actually work his way out of it. This is also a theme you have in in your final chapter, which looks basically at at Clinton through Obama, in which we really have found ourselves in a a situation where when the Congress is dominated by the opposing party, it it almost becomes a winner-take-all scenario. And there's a lot of frustration, possibility, but frustration that you describe. Right, right. And and I argue that uh, Clinton and Obama, in particular Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, as controversial as they are, the one thing there really isn't any controversy about is how talented these men are. You can mm-hmm. like what they were doing with their talent or not like, but these were enormously talented men. And I point out in the chapter how they're phenomena. I mean, they're like that uh, great tennis player who happens to grow up in a poor inner city area and all of a sudden walks on the court and is just this extraordinary player. They bring such skill and talent to the table, but that's also the problem because they overrate what they are able to do. Right. Both of them underinvest, I argue, in trying to reform institutions and build the kinds of partnerships they need in office to get things done. They overinvest 
in their own ability to keep a lot of balls in the air and make a lot of uh, quick decisions. And that ends up coming back to bite them, I argue. Uh, Instead of investing in structural reform, it's too personalized. And I blame the electorate as well, both those who love them and those who hate them. The real problem when we get to the post-Cold War world, Chris, is that we have personalized the office and we expect the problems of the office, which I've argued are historical, Mm -hmm. to be solved by individuals. And here's what I say as a historian. Historical problems are never solved by individuals. They're solved by broader efforts at historical reform, which involves institutions, which involves groups of people. And that's, I think, why we have now started electing people who promise change because of who they are or promise to blow up the system because of who they are, rather than talking about actually reforming it, which is what we need to do. Well, in the interest of and keeping my eye on the clock, we're we're just almost out of time. But what is the path toward the reform that you suggest? I think the great presidents of our past during our periods of, uh, of rise, we might say, recognize that the office had to be remade to serve the needs of those who were not being served by the office. So it is quite clear that large numbers of Americans today feel that the president, no matter who he or she is, is serving their interests. It's time we address that. That's what our healthcare debate should really be about. There are tens of thousands of Americans who are in situations of uh, health tragedy. And it's not to say that one system is better than another, but the office needs to address that in ways it doesn't before. Same is true for the international system. Uh, We live in a world that's more and more Mm conflict-ridden, and too often we have just thrown our military force around because it's quite frankly the easiest thing for the president to do. Uh, We need to reform the way in which the office manages things like diplomacy and other elements of American foreign policy. The office needs to connect to people and the purposes of our country. And our next presidential election should not be an election about who has the best one lines on every issue, but about what our priorities are and which individual is best suited to help us reform our institutions to best serve those who are left behind and best protect the security of our country. It's astonishing to me we're not having that discussion, but if we had a Lincoln, he wouldn't do what Lincoln did, but he would find the words for us to have that discussion today. Well, we'll see what happens in 2020. Yes. Well, thank you so much. The book is really fascinating, and um, I uh, wish you the best of luck with it. Thanks for being with us, and we will see you next time. I appreciate being here. Thanks for your great questions, Chris. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the iTunes U app for iOS or the Tunes Viewer app for Android. You can also access the 10 most recent episodes through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive editor is Joan Newberger, and our technical editor is Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services, Jacob Weiss, Morgan Honecker, Will Kurtzner, Samantha Skinner, and Michael Heidenreich. Special thanks also to Michael DeLeon, iTunes U Site Administrator with Project 2021 and Educational Innovation. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.